Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are working through Advent here, and we're in year A, as you know, Matthew 11, verses 2 through 11 are what is in the lectionary, and um, this is kind of a strange year, as we've noted, so we're going to dig right in with John the Baptist. Thanks, Christy. Um, Our gospel lesson this week uh, returns after significant narrative and discourse to the question of the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. We, we dealt with that last week in John chapter 3, and now we're returning to that in Matthew chapter 11. And although Matthew frames the relationship between John and Jesus as one of fairly close correspondence, uh, the, the, the same message, word for word, that John preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is the message that Jesus preaches when he begins his ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nevertheless, this episode raises the question of the exact nature of the relationship between them. And the point of this is to answer the question, um, who is John? But perhaps even more importantly, to answer the question, who is Jesus? And um, yeah, and that's as as you walk into it, I think um, it's not necessarily obvious. But yeah, as you point that out, that's what's going on. So how is this organized? Well, the 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 Revised Common Lectionary shortens the passage in our gospel reading. Uh, It seems clear that the structure of the passage itself. Uh, is meant to include Matthew 11, 2 through 19. Mm. And most significantly because of the inclusio or the structural brackets formed by the phrase, the deeds of the Messiah in 11, 2 and the deeds of wisdom in eleven mm-hmm. nineteen. Now you may have a version of the of the Bible that reads, wisdom is, is, is vindicated by her children. That's a variant reading there. But um, I think it's I think it's more likely that wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, mm. and actually, the idea is that Jesus is 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 identified with wisdom there, mm-hmm. and so that those two, the deeds of the Messiah and the deeds of wisdom, form this sort of structural brackets around this whole passage, and I think really point to the fact that we should take the whole thing the thing as a whole and and the whole text in Matthew is similar to Luke 7 18 to 35 although Matthew and Luke have their own unique emphases mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so how does talking about today then specifically this framework for today so Matthew introduces the lesson for today in a unique way uh, when John heard in prison that the what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, "Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another?" That's that's unique when you compare it with Luke's gospel, because Luke mm-hmm. introduces this section in a very different way. You know, Calvin actually here takes this apart on its own and just does Matthew. Oh yeah. So I think that that's tells you right there, right? Yeah. Now, the translation of the new RSV produces good English style, but it, it obscures, I think, the important structural brackets I just mentioned. Um, when, uh, by, when, when John heard what the Messiah was doing, um, the Greek text reads, literally, when John heard in prison about the works of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, again, you know, I understand the purpose of the translation is to produce good English style, but if you obscure something that's important in the Greek text, that kind of defeats right, the purpose. Right, right. 
So it's likely that Matthew is intending to summarize all that he's reported about Jesus' ministry up to that point, mm-hmm. including the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, mm-hmm. the narrative of Jesus' miracles in Matthew 8 through 9, with this phrase, the deeds of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that includes the cleansing of a leper. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of anticipating here because we're going to hear these come up again right. in, 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 as we get into the passage. In, in Matthew 8 and 9, we have the cleansing of a leper, the curing of a paralyzed servant, the healing of a second paralyzed man, the raising of a synagogue leader's daughter, and the healing of two blind men. And these are all going to be sort of the signs right. that Jesus points John's disciples toward. You know, I... I get this, right? I get why the Revised Common Lectionary is keeping this John the Baptist theme. It mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. On the other hand, I'm really frustrated by it because we're we're not working through the scripture in its whole. And so it kind of comes in on top of the I other. Know. And I, it, it's one of those times when I keep thinking, maybe this is the year I, I get rid of the lectionary and I just... Wor- go through the scripture. Well, I frankly, mean, that's one of the reasons why I have oftentimes punted and gone to Isaiah and mm-hmm. just done a, done a, um, um, you know, a series through Isaiah because right. it's, it seems to be more coherent. The readings from the prophets seem to be more coherent than the gospel readings. Yeah. It just, it really, there's a lot here that you're missing. And of course, you know, at this time of year you're prepping, you're stressed and you're not necessarily thinking about, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, there's all this stuff in between the right. last time we saw right. it. And that it informs us as to how yeah. we we get to this place in John. Yeah. I I suppose, on the other hand, it, it has a little bit of a feel of a biographical study in a way. Well, so. and you know, the, 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 the revised common lectionary takes Advent as a time not only to think about the f- coming of Christ in his earthly ministry, mm-hmm. but also about preparation for the return of Christ. Right. And I'm not right, so right. sure I'm convinced that that's a good combination always. Frankly. Well, I, you wonder, right? Yeah. Um, especially in today's in today's lack of uh, knowledge about scripture, but yeah. it, it is what it is, and yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it, you know, folks um, folks need to understand the role of this John right. the Baptist. So, right. okay, moving on. Then, what's uh, what, what's coming with the framing of this that you've been talking about? So, I think one of the one of the important things we need to see is that with with you uh, in, in framing all of this, Matthew five through seven, his teaching ministry mm-hmm. as well as his miraculous ministry, in framing all of this as the deeds of the Messiah, Matthew is framing it as messianic ministry, mm-hmm. and this, of course, raises the question of of Jesus' identity. Uh, Gene Boring suggests in his um, commentary on Matthew in the New Interpreter's Bible that to say Jesus is the Christ is not only to say something about Jesus, but to transform the meaning of Christ as mm. well. Okay. And I think that's part that's that's really on point because it's 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 pointing to the fact that Matthew is mm. is portraying Jesus and his ministry as messianic, but we're right. going to see that Jesus both in his identity and in his ministry, doesn't live up to the expectations mm-hmm. people had around right. what it meant that he was going to be the Messiah. You know, I keep thinking about this in terms of people who've received this gospel, who are already mm-hmm. familiar with Jesus. Of course. And so um, putting this out there in this form, uh, I think in a way kind of it kind of suggests to them uh, to replay what they thought Jesus was going to be and who they now know that Jesus mm-hmm. is. It, it's a really interesting, it's, it's very 
It's very teaching heavy, actually. I would agree. I would agree. I think Matthew is, Matthew is written for a community that is that needs their faith to be reinforced, mm-hmm. and and so he is reinforcing their faith in Jesus and who he is uh, as Messiah. We're going to see as Son of David, as the one who bears the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But um, um, he's reinforcing their faith, definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to find out really just how significant this statement about the deeds of the Messiah and about how Matthew frames Jesus' ministry as messianic. We're going to find just how significant that statement will prove to be as we make our way through Matthew's gospel, because this is going to come up again and again. But that Matthew reports John's question at this point, intentionally focus our attention on the question, who is Jesus, as a way of provoking a response to all of Matthew 5 through 9 the Sermon on the Mount, as well as the two chapters Mm -hmm. that contain sort of the earliest part of his ministry. So uh, moving then, moving on um, into our scripture here, um, what, uh, who is John here? Well, John, you know, John is the one who had previously recognized or predicted almost that Jesus would be the coming one after him who would be more powerful in John 3. Uh, I mean, I mean, in Matthew chapter three, mm-hmm. a- and and at his baptism in Matthew right. chapter three fourteen, uh, there is at least an implicit recognition of Jesus as that coming one. Right, and so it, it seems strange then for him to now ask, right. "Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another?" It, it makes you think that John doesn't really know who he is. It, well, it raises the possibility of doubt, or at least that John was wavering in his faith. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there have been many explanations of this in the history of the church. Uh, but I would say the one that's most likely is that Jesus' proclamation and ministry did not match John's expectation of a figure that would bring that fiery stream of judgment that would purify the righteous and destroy the unrighteous that we talked about last week. Hmm. It. it you know, I'm, I'm just processing this to how maybe I once thought about John the Baptist. And I, I always just kind of assumed, I think, that he knew who Jesus was. Mm-hmm. That there was, this wasn't mm-hmm. really a question. And, and I wonder in terms of God's, kind of God's sovereignty, and we're going to see, Calvin's going to interpret this differently, <laughs> um, that John should know who Jesus is. Right? Well, and, you know, in John's gospel, for example, John does know who Jesus yeah, is, and yeah. there's never, but here's the thing. In John's gospel, Jesus always knows. Jesus knows right. what he's about from That's the very right. beginning. That's right. So there, there is a different perspective in mm-hmm. John's gospel. And I think a lot of us maybe view John the Baptist from that perspective of John's do. gospel, that he knew from the start who Jesus was. Well, I was. think we do. I think yeah. we do. And and yet, there's something here that's very human about this, I which I think also gives us a different look at John. So, Well, and here's the thing. I mean, you know, uh, I think later, it didn't take long for, for Christian interpreters, whether it was the fathers or whether it was the formers, to want to harmonize the ministry of John and Jesus a little more. Of course they did. And, yeah. and here in Matthew, and really in Matthew and, and, and Luke, we see indications or hints that, that John really was more oriented towards judgment than Jesus was. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, because Jesus didn't fulfill that kind of, he didn't come right. preaching, you right. know, fire and judgment. Right. He came preaching well, salvation and, and mercy. In a way, it makes sense if John 
<laughs> in a different light, it makes sense if John doesn't fully understand who Jesus mm-hmm. is, right? Exactly. Are you the one? Because you aren't mm-hmm. doing what we expected you to be doing, and yet I, what, we, I baptized you, and right. I knew you were the one. Right. And so right. I'm confused. And so I, really, I think that's I think that's a great way to frame mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great way to frame it. Um. And so Jesus' answer to John is virtually the same in Matthew and in Luke. And in, 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 in you find it in Luke 7, 22 and 23. Jesus answered them, that is Jesus, that John's disciples, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with the skin disease or lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not accidental that that this statement, I think, sort of recapitulates what you find in Matthew 8 and 9. But it's also not accidental that this statement consists of allusions to several specific passages in Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live. Mm -hmm. In 29, 18, the deaf shall hear and the eyes of the blind shall see. Mm And uh, actually, we should compare also Isaiah 61.1, which in the Septuagint, not in the Masoretic text, but in the Septuagint, adds a statement that the blind will receive their sight. They will see again. Uh, uh, Isaiah uh, 35, 5 and 6, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, or literally, the ears of the deaf will hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the lame shall leap like a deer. And, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting, I think, that Isaiah 35, 1 through 10 is also one of the readings for this week in the Revised Oh, yeah, Dictionary. yeah, that's, and that yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. So th- this, is, this is really important to see that, 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 that Jesus' answer in Matthew is framed in this way, that it not only recapitulates what Jesus has already done in, in Matthew 8 and 9, but it also really kind of points back to these promises of salvation that would have been well known mm-hmm. in, the, in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Very good. All and right. actually, the most important connection here is the allusion to Isaiah 61.1, mm-hmm. to bring good news to the poor. Um, yes. In a very real sense, I think this statement comes last in Jesus' response to John's question, because it serves as the interpretive clue for all the rest of what John's disciples see and hear. You know, Jesus told him, go right. and tell John right. what you right. see right. and right. hear. Right. right, And so you have all these things happening, and then so then finally it's, and the, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Uh, I don't like the NRSV. It says the good news brought to them. The verb is euangelizomai. Mm. And so, I, you know, I, I think it should be the poor have the good news preached to well, them. Well, and I think that's, I think that's better. And, and some of the ways that um, Calvin's going to respond mm-hmm. really come out with this idea that he's preaching. And, yeah. and I think it, it, it gives much... Um, it's just a much more active verb. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, essentially, Matthew, really, I think we see Matthew, uh, uh, you know, uh, I will say this, you know, in my in my work as a New Testament scholar, I focus more on Luke than I have on Matthew in my career. Mm-hmm. And, and digging into Matthew this year, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that Matthew shares Luke's emphasis that Jesus' ministry constitutes a fulfillment of the promises of salvation in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 61, 1 and mm-hmm. 2. You know, we saw in our discussion of Luke 4, 18 through 19, that, um, that this was thematic for 
for Luke's gospel. And we're going to see, especially when we get to the Beatitudes, this is also yeah, thematic yeah. for Matthew's gospel. But we're also going to see something that's that's unique about all of these these um, promises in Isaiah, including Isaiah one, um, including Isaiah sixty one one and two, which we also saw in our discussion of Luke, is that. These promises of salvation occur in a setting in which judgment is part of the message, but Jesus leaves that out. Hmm. And we saw this last year when we looked at Luke 4, 18, 19. Hmm. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of judgment of our God is the hmm. way the Masoretic text reads it. Right. But in the citation in Luke's gospel, oh, it's just to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor huh. right? Interesting. And so, again, what we will see is that Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 plays a significant role in interpreting Jesus' ministry in Matthew, just as it did in Luke. Let me ask you a question here. I, as you're, you're introducing this. is really interesting, and I'm wondering, is this because of a shared, is this because of a cue? Are they getting this from somewhere else? Or? I don't think so. I think it's because um, if you read the New Testament, you know, you can see there are significant allusions to Isaiah throughout right. the New Testament writers. I think, and I think that Isaiah played a significant role in in the New Testament uh, writers' use of the Hebrew Bible uh, as scriptural uh, proofs, so to speak. Right. Not proof texting, but but to to point that to point right. to the, their conviction that Jesus was fulfilling God's purposes as laid out in the scriptures, especially in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Now, in part, this connection with Isaiah 61 is established through the beatitude that follows. We don't normally think of it as such, but Jesus said, blessed is anyone who takes no offense mm-hmm. at me in verse 6. And the connection between Isaiah 61 and the Beatitudes of Matthew will be established more firmly when we discuss Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Mm -hmm. But we're going to see when we get there that there is a clear connection between Isaiah 61 and the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel. But more importantly, in this context, the litany of fulfilled promises from Isaiah, along with Jesus' declaration of the blessedness of those who take no offense at him, raise the question of Jesus' messianic consciousness. Mm. Now, in New Testament historical circles, this has been a huge debate because there are a lot of people who want to say that this was sort of an unfolding thing for Jesus and that he didn't perhaps mm-hmm. didn't didn't really clearly understand himself. The himself as the Messiah until we see him making these clear right. predictions of his death right. coming well, later on in the gospel. And that argument bears something when you think of Jesus being fully human, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's there's some fairness into that. And if you think of it in terms of sanctification in our terminology, that also fits with right, Jesus. Right. So that's an interesting theory, yes. But but here, uh, yeah, and, and, and one of the things you're going to find, I mean, one of the things, you know, we we don't really, we talked about this in Mark, we talked about this in Luke, with, with Jesus' use of the term son of man, it sort of throws people mm. off because that's not a normal or typical messianic title, and so people don't understand it. And in fact, some New Testament scholars argue that in some places, son of man could could be translated just someone like me. Oh, Interesting. Um, and, oh. and and so uh, I don't think, uh, you know, there's some people who insist that's what it means all the time. And really? I don't agree with that because someone like me has the authority to forgive sins. Someone like me has, is Lord right. of the Sabbath. Right. You know, that, that doesn't make much sense. But um, we've seen already that this question about who Jesus is, is is a problem that Mark and Luke address. And Matthew really comes almost 
you have one of the closest statements in the synoptic gospel tradition to Jesus affirming in his ministry that he is truly the Messiah in this in this passage. Um, now, you know, again, John's questions are very likely centered on the fact that Jesus hadn't fully fulfilled his expectation that the coming one would bring the judgment of the last days. So, so that's where we're starting here, right? Mm-hmm. But Jesus, and, and, and we need to acknowledge that Jesus does not answer by ascribing any kind of title to himself, because we should remember that the phrase, the deeds of the Messiah, when John heard about the deeds of the Messiah, that's part of Matthew's narration. So Jesus doesn't use that word for himself. Matthew uses that no. word for Jesus, okay. right? Okay. Mm-hmm. But when Jesus points to what could be seen and heard and really um, uh, heard and seen, he says, when Jesus points to what could be heard and seen, you know, it's very, it's, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's not far to make the connection between that and Jesus' authoritative teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Right. That's what could be heard. Mm-hmm. And his fulfillment of the promises of salvation in Isaiah, that's could, what could be seen mm-hmm. in his ministry, especially in, uh, in the, in, as it's recounted in Matthew 8 and 9. So the implicit connection with Isaiah 61 does point to him as this one who is anointed by the Spirit, this one who is the bearer of the Spirit, mm-hmm. who brings the kingdom to the poor and comfort to those who mourn, mm-hmm. using the language of Isaiah 61. In other words, this is perhaps the closest thing we have in Matthew's gospel, or perhaps even in the synoptic gospel tradition to Jesus yeah. admitting that wow. he is the Messiah. Yeah, yeah. And that totally makes sense right? he, with he, Matthew, he, he right? Don't you think? I think it does. I do, I do. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't, but again, let me clarify, he doesn't do it by by using any titles. Right. He does it by pointing to what he's what he's right. doing. Exactly. Yeah. His his what he is doing and what he is saying reflects right. the fulfillment of the promises of salvation in Isaiah. Right. And that that makes sense. It, it it totally makes sense with how Jesus is because mm-hmm. because that's the emphasis that we're going to see later on is that that doing and that it being in discipleship is is being into doing and mm-hmm. not about proclaim. I think that's really brilliant of Matthew actually mm-hmm. to yeah, do it this way. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So then, while we do here, I have I think a key witness to Jesus' self consciousness as the one who had come to fulfill the promises of salvation. This verse also demonstrates the fact that Jesus failed to live up to the commonly held expectations regarding the Messiah mm-hmm. in that right. day. And so then the beatitude he pronounces on those who take no offense at him is, is that's, that's where the context of that is. Now, the translation of the NRSV and the majority of English versions, those who take no offense at him, obscures an important connection with the New Testament theme of the scandal mm-hmm. of the cross, which we find in some of Paul's letters. But right. we find it also in, in um, Matthew 16. Uh, and the verb here is scandalizo, mm-hmm. from which we get the term scandalon, the scandalon of the cross. And, mm-hmm. which is the noun form of the verb. It's like verb. a cognate to the English it is. word, isn't it? It is, mm-hmm. almost. And I prefer the translation of the NIV, blessed are those who do not stumble on account of me. That seems to, I think, make it a little more clear that we're talking about a stumbling block because scandalon is oftentimes translated as a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. And so that makes the connection with scandalon a little clearer. Um, and, and, you know, um, both... Um, 
Paul in Romans 9:33 and first and Peter in 1 Peter 2:8 cite Isaiah 8:14 which is sort of this this stone of stumbling this is where this this context comes from in, in this connection between you know the stone of stumbling has become the stone which the builders rejected which has become the the capstone, right? right. right? Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. have those we have those citations mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Yep. So this is a theme in the New Testament, and I think I think translating it, "Blessed are those who take no offense at me," sort of obscures that that connection between this passage and that theme and uh, the rest of the right, New Testament. Right, right. I agree. I agree. And oh, sometimes, I mean, it's one of those things. You know, we have the NSRV in, in the Presbyterian Church usually in most of our, mm-hmm. and, and I always have people ask me, "Well, this is the best one." I'm like, "Well." <laughs> Yes. Not always, right? Not Sometimes always, right? there's better there's better translations and for various things than mm-hmm. this one sometimes. And so it's always good to look at well, more than one. That's why I I mean I use I use the the, the website Bible Gateway. Bible Gateway's helpful. Uh, and I places. just it's so nice to be able to compare all the English translations on a particular verse and and you know, I've taught people, you know, in terms of Bible study method one of your bread and butter, one of your pieces of bread and butter ought to be if you have a question about a verse go to that verse and just look right. at all the english translations because if there's an issue there if there's an interpretive issue you're going to see it highlighted see it. in in the different yeah, translations you will absolutely yeah. Yeah. and um yeah. so that's yeah it's really helpful yeah. it's really helpful so basically jesus is blessing those who do not take the fact that he did not live up to their expectations for a messiah as an obstacle to faith in him mm-hmm. So we move on to the next section. Yeah, and the next section of the passage is marked off by a second question. The first question was from John, mm-hmm. are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? The second question is 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 one that Jesus asked, and we also have a change of setting here. John's disciples have gone, and Jesus addresses his question to the crowds. Mm-hmm. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. And that's verses 7 through 10 in our passage Mm -hmm. for today. And so here the focus shifts to the question, who was John? Mm-hmm. And the way Jesus words the question is couched in language that likely would have been commonplace in his day, but seems strange to us. A reed blown by the wind that, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense Yeah, that to doesn't us. make a lot of sense. But there are a couple of options here. Jesus could have been asking whether they went out into the wilderness expecting to see someone as commonplace as reeds blow by, blown by the wind or someone wearing the kind of clothing that could be seen in the palace. That was something that was commonplace is the idea. Mm-hmm. But again, the fact that the crowds were said to go out into the wilderness may point to the possibility that they were expecting John to repeat the wonders uh, of the Exodus. Yes, yes. Or they were they were looking for something more than just something mm-hmm. the the ordinary, something more than just the commonplace. But they may have they may have been looking for someone who was acting as David's royal successor. Mm. So, you know, again, their messianic expectations drove them out into the wilderness to hear this preacher. It is interesting that we are left to speculate here a little bit. Right. We you know, are. we, we don't really know exactly what Jesus meant by that. Well, because the language is really unusual. It you is know, unusual. Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind, or did you go to see people dressed in soft robes? 
probably was idiomatic for that day. Right. But trying to recover ancient idioms is is tough. It is tough. <laughs> it is tough. So interesting. And so yeah. you probably find a lot of different interpretations of this. I probably do. <laughs> probably yeah. do. Yeah. Okay. But... Uh, I, I do think there's something there with the soft robes versus what we know, the careful description that Matthew made mm-hmm. of um, the camels. John's, John's, John's attire. Garb, exactly. His attire yeah. that he comes. So yeah. I think I think there's a nice comparison there that's yes, definitely indeed. intentional. A so. contrast, yeah. Mm-hmm. So despite whatever expectations the crowd may have had about John, Jesus calls him a prophet. And in other words, he was one who declared the word of the Lord to them. And that much would probably have been a matter of widespread agreement. I think most people considered John to be a prophet in the vein of the prophets of old. But Jesus goes on to identify John as more than a prophet. And he explaining this is the point of Matthew eleven ten through 15. Mm-hmm. So again, the revised common lectionary kind of cuts off the explanation by stopping at verse 11. Right. So in Matthew eleven ten, Jesus begins to point in the direction that John was more than a prophet and that he not only spoke about what God was doing among the people, but he also played a key role in fulfilling those events. This is the one about whom it is written, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way for you. So he not only announced the coming events, but he played a role in them. And and that's, that's, I think, part of what Jesus is trying to say here. But then Jesus, and here Jesus lays the biblical groundwork for identifying John as the one who's come in the role of Elijah as the forerunner of the Messiah right. by quoting a combination of Exodus 23.20 and Malachi 3.1. Mm-hmm. Now, we've come across this before. Yes. When yeah. we did Mark chapter 1, at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, we have this same combination, very close. Very, it's very similar in Mark chapter 1-2, which raises some interesting questions about the connection between Mark and Q, right. or at least perhaps a common theme in the oral gospel tradition that they shared. Right. But here the point of this is really to identify John as the one, he's more than a prophet. He's the one who's come in the role of Elijah, who's going Mm -hmm. to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, I think this use of Elijah bringing this in here, A, obviously, it fits within this tradition that they have, but I also think it makes sense within Matthew's audience. Surely, so absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. This, this all, this all good. This all good. Yeah. <laughs> so then Jesus continues with some more unusual declarations about John. First, he says, "Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he." So he's he's greater than any other born of woman, but. He's, he's lesser than the least in the kingdom. Right. <laughs> and what is, right. what is the point of this? Well, here I think the idea is that John stands at the beginning of the new era mm-hmm. in God's saving purpose, uh, the era of the kingdom. And the following verses, which are excluded from the Revised Common Lectionary, really complete the thought, I think, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that, that John stands at the transition of, of the, 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 the work of God's saving purpose. In verses 12 and 13, we hear Jesus say, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent people take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. Now, we saw this unusual saying about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence and violent t- people taking it by force in Luke 16, 16. Um, 
where, you know, this is one of the most difficult of Jesus' sayings. And it's likely, especially in view of the following context in Matthew eleven sixteen through 19, that the point of the saying here is that those who have aligned their lives with the kingdom have suffered violence at the hands of violent people. That's a very different point from what we saw in Luke 16, 16. In Luke 16, 16, it was, Luke has reshaped this saying mm. to, to make a very different point. Despite this, at the end of that uh, passage, at the end of this whole pericope in, in, in verse 19, Jesus is going to insist that wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, which reminds us of the deeds of the Messiah that he has been doing and insists that he, as well as John, will be vindicated by God. And so, uh, you know, again, one of the themes that we're going to find in Matthew uh, is, is, is sort of a conflict between kingdoms. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've yeah, got the kingdom of God and you've got, you've got earthly kingdoms earthly kingdom. in where, conflict. Where, where is John? You yeah. know, where is John? John stands I, at the transition. Yeah. So, so, so this, this strange set of, of verses does bring up an important question, and that is, is John prior to the kingdom and that is is he mm-hmm. is he in the is in the era of the law and the prophets or is he right. in the era of the kingdom where do we put him right some people say well he's kind of a transitional figure right. in that and, he's and neither one this, or the other right but, but calvin but, pushes him into ultimately the kingdom which is interesting but he, he calls uh, him transitional that seems to be the implication mm-hmm. here you know that 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 jesus is including john mm-hmm. in the kingdom because it was up until John, that it was the law and the prophets. Right. But the implication is that with John, then now we have this the kingdom of heaven that has that has come, and those who align themselves mm-hmm. are suffer violence, just like John has, and just like right. Jesus. Will. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's how yeah. I. That's how I'm looking at it. And yeah. and and clearly, the the church by calling him a saint, yeah. uh, has put him in there as well. Yeah, so I think definitely. that makes that totally makes sense. Yeah. So. So then Jesus sort of really, I think, makes the clearest statement about what he's saying about John by, by declaring openly, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Mm-hmm. Let anyone with ears listen in verses 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. And again, the point is that John not only spoke about what God was doing about the people, but he played a key role in fulfilling those events. So <laughs> I guess this kind of concludes our kind of our analysis of today. Um, But I still think when you read it, it's kind of odd for our Sunday here in Advent. Yeah, I mean, this is the revised common lectionary gospel reading for Gaudete Sunday or the Sunday of joy in Advent. (laughs) Where do we find joy (laughs) in, in this passage? Well, I think at the heart of this passage is the affirmation that in Jesus' ministry, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. I read that almost like Luke four eighteen and 19, you know, citing um, Isaiah 61, one, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, release to the captives and the year of the Lord's favor. You know, and so mm-hmm. I think this, right. this sort of functions right. in a similar way yeah. in Matthew's yeah. gospel. And again, this this declaration heard this declaration in Matthew's gospel heard in light of the promises of salvation in Isaiah serves as the closest thing we have to Jesus identification of himself as the Messiah, perhaps in the whole synoptic gospel tradition. Mm 
He is indeed the coming one, despite any lingering doubts that John or the Jewish people or perhaps even Matthew's community may have had because he didn't precisely fulfill their expectations. Mm -hmm. And he is the bearer of the spirit of Isaiah who brings the kingdom to the poor and comforts those who mourn. And I Mm -hmm. think that is some good cause for joy. joy. That is the (laughs) joy right there. And that makes sense why it's on this day. But what an interesting compared to some of our other years. You have to work for it. (laughs) The common lecture makes you work for it this year. You have to work for it. Yep, (laughs) I agree. Thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and we are going to see how the Reformers treated this passage and and their take on John, perhaps a little bit different from what uh, we were talking about, but um, it's always always helpful to to hear what the Reformers have to say. Uh, It it is, indeed. And I looked at Calvin's commentaries this time, and um, some of the themes that he brings up, and of course, like Alan said, he, he's looking at how this defines the relationship between John and Jesus. So the first part of this discussion is going to look at kind of his response to Scripture. And um, perhaps even more importantly is what is relationship between Jesus' disciples and John's disciples. So um, in, in, in institutes, um, um, according to Calvin, John sends his disciples to see for themselves who Jesus is. Is. Well, and, and that's what happens in John's gospel. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and of course, again, he's harmonizing. Right. And he's going to harmonize. They also harmonize as John when he can, which is interesting. So um, Calvin believes that John is, already knows who Jesus is. Yeah. Um, and so this kind of a certainty that we did not have in our discussion here mm-hmm. that Calvin has about John. After all, the Jewish tradition expected... Um, Jesus to come or Christ to come, um, and uh, and he did. And um, for John, it was the number of people that were following Jesus that spoke for his identity. Mm. So not so much the actions, but rather the number of people that followed. Again, Interesting. Well, and yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think most New Testament historians would say that that um, John was the one who had the following prior to Jesus' yeah. baptism and to his basically his, his revealing himself and, right. and that when Jesus launched his public ministry, then Jesus began to have a following. But yeah. that initially it was but John who had But initially John, and, yeah. and, and John thought that we can tell this is the Christ because the people are starting to follow Jesus, yeah. not because of the works, which is uh, a very Reformation kind of thing to say, right? right? You don't want right. to overemphasize works. <laughs> so, And um, yet, you know, I don't know how they do that because... Um, I will say, you know, this has been something that's been a conviction of mine throughout my career, you know, for all the years I've been studying New Testament theology. The Christology of of the New Testament is functional. You know, it's about it's about what Jesus does. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, and I <laughs> I think it's it's Jesus's response is important and we're going to see this interplay that he tries to define for us. But it's part of that Calvin's theology and yeah. especially in the face of this works emphasis Surely. emphasis Roman Catholic tradition that he's kind yep. of wanting to say it's the Holy Spirit that yep. does the work. And so, I can see that. Yeah. So, um now when the disciples um, of John um, and, a- he, and Calvin believes are stupid in asking, quote, should we work for, look for another? 
So um, instead of like we talked about this as John's question that they're posing to him, that this is indeed something that comes from disciples. And so in that way, John is kind of elevated in Calvin's yeah. mind. And I think also this might relate to his whole concept of sovereignty of God and therefore mm-hmm. even into the, the roles of elect um, and what one would be Well, if be doing. John's going to be a prophet, he can scarcely have, da- scarcely have exactly. doubts about what God is doing exactly. in the world, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, they could observe the miracles um, that corresponded directly to the prophets. For example, he points out Calvin, Isaiah 35 and 61, which we talked about. And the miracles were part of a display of the simple-minded as a response to God's work within. Um, through them, quote, Christ shows by outward symbols that he came as a spiritual, a spiritual, sorry, physician, spiritual, sorry, let me, let me do that again. Through them said, quote, Christ shows by outward symbols that he came as a spiritual physician to heal souls. And then also the lack of a direct reply, according to Calvin, allows John's disciples to show that, quote, the treasures of God's grace are exhibited in the world to the world in Christ and that Christ is for the poor and afflicted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I think it's interesting that they, that, that, that Calvin saw, you know, to me, to me, the whole point of this passage is look at what I'm doing. Look I at know. the miracles. I know. Isn't and that and interesting? For, for Calvin to say that this was a display for the simple minded, you know, it seems, seems to reflect his anti-Catholic bias as well. I think so. Because, because the miraculous and the mysterious was a very much a part of the ritual of, of the Catholic church. And Calvin was much more about, you know, the plain teaching of the word. And that's going to come out in this passage as well. So as we move on. Yeah. Um, Now, another thing that Calvin claims that Jesus is putting John above the other prophets um, that he was greater, quote, because his proclamation that the time of redemption was present and was made plainly and openly, not like the earlier prophets from afar and obscurely under the shadows. So John is above, he's that in-between figure we talked about. He's the one who announces Christ. He is the one to show that Christ was present. It is John, says Calvin, who places the gospel above the law. Mm. And he further expounds on this in showing that John is a transitional figure between the law and the gospel. Um, But John, not knowing the resurrection, was not equal to the apostles. So he's this in-between guy we've talked about. But I think we mentioned earlier, Calvin still would place him him into the saved group. And I Mm -hmm. think that comes from the earlier church. So, mm mm-hmm. I find again, I find it interesting that that I would say Calvin attribute gives gives John a lot more credit based on the Gospels than what I would give John credit. I think so too, especially based on our passage I for think today. That I I really think that emerged from earlier interpretations of Scripture and earlier I interpretations right. I of those people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, church fathers had church already fathers. gone there. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Calvin uses this pa- passage to reflect on the nature of Christ and the nature of humanity. So that kind of double dual kingdom thing we talked about. Calvin emphasizes the trend for human beings to be attracted to pride and displays of splendor. For example, not only the Roman Catholic Church, but also the aristocracy. And the church, says Calvin, is made up of poor little human beings, the true church, right? He claims that the reasons that so many are adverse to the church is because it does not celebrate the rich. And I find that fascinating. I guess I guess perhaps that was true in his day, 
Um, and, and, you know, a lot of times these days, and, and you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church was very wealthy Absolutely. in that day, right? Absolutely, and it did celebrate the rich. But that certainly has changed these days. Right, <laughs> right. And I think what's interesting here, um, and this part of the analysis is um, Calvin's really hard on humanity, saying that only a few are not puffed up by the riches. But it's important to point that it is not the riches and splendor itself that corrupts, but the celebration of it, the mm. obsession with it. So it's not, this isn't just a condemnation on being wealthy, but mm -hmm. a condemnation on kind of this aura that co comes along with being, right. being wealthy. Right. I keep thinking of um, a particular political figure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you still got the Protestant work ethic that's developed, that's developing, right, you know, in right. the works of the reformers, mm -hmm, right? So you can't, you can't, you can't dis wealth. <laughs> you can't, you yeah. can't, and he doesn't, and I think he doesn't, but he is saying, look, this can it can be corrupting, right? Um, in this in this way, and you have to be careful. Um, how is that wealth used? Mm -hmm. And these these obnoxious displays, and that people are gaining prestige because of how their sumptuous displays is not is not a good sign. Surely. So another point is the emphasis on the centrality of teaching. And honestly, I don't know really that I would have read this passage coming at it, thinking of this as a teaching <laughs> passage, right? Um, but Calvin, with his Reformation eyes, sees this as, as teaching central to this passage. And so here, he uses the idea that the people want to go to the desert to find John the Baptist um, and saying that they were going for a purpose, and that was to hear God's voice, teaching, finding mm -hmm. him to be taught. And John yeah. responded by pointing attention to the gospel. So John's voice is not equal, as we noted before, but again, that this is kind of a first, um, first teaching opportunity. So... Um, Kind of an interesting one, so that's kind of the um, kind of the rundown of how he interprets this this two through eleven. Now I wanted to kind of go on some of the comments he makes. Then of then, what does it mean for the us as 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 believers, right? So one of my favorite ones, and just a little bit about it, is he said this the whole passage is designed to remind pastors <laughs> that they are um, to direct their flocks to Christ and not themselves. <laughs> okay. Because that's what John the Baptist did. Yeah. So there's definitely, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, there's definitely a connection for Calvin between John the Baptist, the common preacher, and the preachers in the faith. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to see that over and over in Reformation, um, some of the imagery we, we find. The second is the relationship between repentance and forgiveness. Um, and so Calvin talks about this quite at length in the Institutes, um, uh, book three, chapter three, verse 20 and 19 and 20 is where he's at. And Calvin argues that God's mercy, which is freely given, should cause people to repent. So it reflects that one does not need to do anything, um, even repent, to earn forgiveness. Yet, one would repent in response to forgiveness. So what is interesting is that Calvin says that because of our sinful nature, we should always be in a state of repentance. He quotes Luther here saying that, Truly they who are held by a real loathing of sin cannot do otherwise, for no one ever hates sin unless he has been previously been seized with a love of righteousness. So, the relationship between forgiveness and repentance is connected. 
it would seem that someone cannot accept God's forgiveness unless they are not truly repentant. So it is not a cause and effect, but rather more of a synergy Mm. is how Mm. I kind of understood it. Sure. In this space for Calvin, there's a reminder of total depravity. Therefore, you can't just repent and ask for forgiveness, but rather you have to understand that everything you do is corrupt and therefore to really embody forgiveness, um, you are always in a state of repentance and Mm. thus always have a trust in your faith. So I think many of us like the cause and effect. I do this, then then I'm in a state of grace. I mean, that's the kind of Roman Catholic model. And here Mm -hmm. it's like you always have to be that. You can never assume that you are in a state of grace. grace. And the only thing (laughs) you can do is accept that Jesus died for you on the cross. So it's, it's it's kind of a beautiful image, but yet in some ways it's more complex to wrap your brain around. Yeah, I guess perhaps it might be more accurate to say... In some ways, you're never in a state of grace. In other ways, you're always in a state yeah, of grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like it. I do, but it's also um, it's also very hard to wrap your brain around mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah, paradoxical. Uh, yeah, yeah, paradoxical. So, and then finally, um, I just wanted to look at a couple of the popular treatments of John the Baptist. As I mentioned, he was considered to be the, the preacher. So I just went to some visual images and I picked out a couple. Um but um, this is somebody who is teaching directly with the authority of God and not with institutional backing. In other words, John reflects that um, God's, God's voice can come through common people and mm-hmm. you don't have to be in some hierarchy in the church, mm. right? So in this way, he became a, mo- a model for many preachers um, during the Reformation. And I found this fantastic image of a Weimar centerpiece um, and this is after Luther, but the, it's depicted with John the Baptist and then Lucas Cranach, who is a famous, famous artist, um, whose art is well known um, throughout the Reformation uh, publication. So in a way, he's preaching the word through his art. Yeah. And then Martin Luther. Yeah. So in other words, as the preachers of the word in, mm-hmm. in visual and in, in, in sermon and wow. of course, using, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> um, another one that I picked out was Peter the Elder, um, who does one a sermon, a famous image by on a sermon of Saint John the Baptist, fifteen sixty six. Now, this is one of several several that have this kind of sa- same theme. But John here is in the center of a large crowd. And what's interesting when you first look at the image, you don't it's not like Jesus where it's really high with a halo and there's his no head. halo <laughs> exactly he looks you have to look for him a little bit yeah. he's not even right in the center of the painting right yeah. um but yet he commands the attention the crowds ultimately when you look are all looking at him right and again it's that model for preaching someone not dressed in the fancy red robes but simplicity someone who responded directly to God and spoke the truth about the human condition and um, in most of these images, as I said, you have to look for him. Um, and it's a reminder that he himself is a sinner and recognizes that need for repentance, that condition that is of humanity, and that their eyes and that one's eyes cannot be opened to Christ without awareness of their own situation. Sure. So I have. All right. Thanks, Thanks Christy. Hi, everybody. We're back, and during our little break, we 
talked about how we come to scripture and um, how all of us come to scripture with eyes, with a, if we, if you will, a hermeneutical lens. And, um, you know, one of the things I want to point out with Calvin is that, and, and all of our reformers, they, they really feel like they're coming at the, the scripture with this renewed truth because they have now the Greek scriptures at hand. They've been translated and they're really using modern techniques of the day for their truth, but they still do have a lens, which is what we see with Calvin. Um, and part of the reason when we started this podcast was that I wanted you to realize that their, how they have interpreted the scripture impacts us today as Presbyterians. And I'm hoping you're hearing that as we go through each passage, it's like, oh gosh, that's how come I see it this way. But then we have Alan, who's a very sophisticated um, contemporary New Testament scholar who brings us to yet another level of understanding the scripture and sees maybe the limitations of what the reformers has have done and frankly some of the limitations of our kind of expected reading of it based even on how they've influenced us. So it's really exciting I think as we get into this discussion. But um, even then as Alan says he has a hermeneutical lens and and so do I. So I Share your hermeneutical lens. For yeah, us. thanks, Christy. You know, I, I taught hermeneutics in, in seminary, and, you know, it's not that none of us can expect to interpret anything without some sort of hermeneutical filter or hermeneutical lens or mm-hmm. theological framework, because we need that to make sense out of out of the Bible or out of our theology or out mm-hmm. of our experience with the world, right? Um, and so it's not that a hermeneutical lens is bad. What is what the what the problem becomes in is is when you have a hermeneutical lens and you're not aware. Oh yes, right. this is my hermeneutical lens. Right, right. And and you assume this is the truth with a capital T. Right, right. right. Which which kind of was what the reformers were doing. They they sort of they sort of assumed. Right. You know we have the truth Absolutely. over against those corrupt Catholic people leaders. You know who have who have deceived and and Absolutely. and are and are leading people well, astray. You know, and I mentioned this before. Luther came in at scripture thinking, ah, oh, now that the scripture's in people's hands, the real scripture, <laughs> they will read it with the Holy Spirit and they'll interpret it. It's, we, God will give them the story. We interpret it the same way. And of course they didn't. And they, most of them still had the, the lens of medieval absolutely, theology you know, absolutely. That, they were, that they were raised with. But it, it does tell you that about this early modern period where they're still not fully aware of their own limitations and at least the early reformation they had this kind of magical dream that everyone would come at it the same way realizing oh my gosh they don't and because one had to be right over the other it's partly what led to even further splintering because they disagreed as to what they read and as that's where of course why calvin is so amazing is because he's really that first one to set down a theology a systematic theology that at least we can see, oh, and these were his lenses. <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, you know, I grew up in the Methodist church, and then I, I went, in, went to the Baptist church, and I, was, I, was, I went to school at a Baptist college. Um, essentially, the theology that I cut my teeth on was reformed in nature, but, you know, the focus on it was on individual salvation. Mm-hmm. And it That's was right. on, you know, uh, it, was on, it was on discipleship, 
I, right. I remember when I was, you know, I started preaching at a, in a country church when I was 20 because you could do that in the Baptist world. And, you know, I, my, my Sunday evening sermon, we had Sunday evening worship and, and Sunday evening, my Sunday evening sermons were all discipleship oriented. Oh, and sure. so it's all about yeah. personal faith yeah. and personal salvation, right? And so over the course of about 20 years of studying the Bible, reading through the Bible, going through my education, um, and my lens began to shift from individual salvation to the idea of God's broader salvific purpose for all creation. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, mm-hmm. I began to notice passages like some of the ones that we mentioned in Isaiah. Right. I began to notice passages in the Psalms where it talked about all people will come and bow before God. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's like, well, wait, how does that work with this sort of individual salvation framework? It did, you know, and so it took a while for me to resolve that. And, and so, you know, all the while I'm still studying, I'm reading through the Bible personally and devotionally as well as, as professionally and academically. It's sort of the, 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 this is why Jurgen Moltmann is my favorite Reformed theologian, is because the, the, the culmination of that process was that I read through all of his major works, began with Theology of Hope, went on to um, the Crucified God, right, right. Church and the Power of the Spirit, the Trinity and the Kingdom, um, uh, the Spirit of Creation, uh, the Way of Jesus Christ, and then the Coming God. I read all of those, and you know, it helped sort of to confirm that there is a theological tradition out there mm-hmm. that is that supports this idea right. that that God's salvific purpose is beyond just the right. salvation of, of individuals. individuals. Yeah. In fact, in fact, in the crucified God, Moltmann calls that a truncated Christology. In other words, your idea of what how, you know? What God is doing through Christ is too small. Right. God is doing something much bigger right. than just right. just saving individual but, souls. And I think part of that, I mean, I think part of that lens comes from just such a narrow view of of humanity. I mean, right. I, and I, I talked about this earlier. I think part of that's because our parts part of it's because we're Western folks and we're yep. trained to really look within. Yep. I mean, but that's kind of our our sense of reality too. Um, and so I think it does ask you to kind of step into this broader world this broader um uh, realization about not being alone in the universe even and, and well some and of I, these bigger pictures. i frame it in terms of new creation you know yeah, that this is this is the new creation and you can mm-hmm. go on you can go on my you can go on my sermon blog page and you can find lots of sermons about new creation or right. about I use the phrase universal redemption i'm, I'm right and i i don't i don't frame it in terms of universalism that typically says it doesn't matter what you believe right. everyone is going to finally arrive at the same point right. what what i believe is that as paul says in ephesians chapter 1 god's purpose is to bring all things back together under right. christ right now you know folks who are who are involved in interreligious dialogue might not be comfortable with that and and folks from other religions might not be comfortable with that because i'm saying i believe that all things and all people will be redeemed by being by being brought under Christ. Right, right. So, you know, 
and that has become that is my interpretive lens and and it is you know it is something with which i look at all of scripture it is something with which i look at theology it is something with which i interpret human experience i was gonna say it's human experience and that's uh, that's what i really like about this because it it doesn't it's not a limited kind of salvation it's a limited kind of vision it's just to this handful of people that Mm -hmm. are that are elect but rather it gives you this kind of vision that, that allows for the world. And frankly, I think it allows for even beyond what our human experience can yeah, have. And no, that's it's, it's really awesome. It's about the natural order as well. Yeah, you know, exactly. we look at, we look at exactly. the damage done to, to nature and, and, you know, to me, this new creation right. restores the natural order as well. So as we are saying this, um, they just found dark matter. There's a paper out. Oh, yeah. So here's something that theory that we know exists, but now they actually feel like they have. An wow. Act- yeah. That's cool. So I have to talk to my son, the uh, physicist, about that. you got to talk to the physicist about it. But what is super cool about that, uh, this is a theology that incorporates that. Surely. That's, and that's what's amazing because a lot of theologies out there can't. Right. And that then limits God and it limits... Um, and it falls empty, yeah. you know, and so it's it's really cool. So for me, I mean, it comes as no surprise then that I come to a passage like this and I come away with this emphasis on Jesus fulfilling the promises of the of Isaiah regarding God's saving purposes. You know, mm-hmm. the, the lame walk, right, the deaf right. hear, the blind see, you know, the dead are right. raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them, you know. Right. And, and that... That reflects. I know that that reflects my yeah, hermeneutical an, lens. Interesting. I, I I know that it's a it's a it's a hermeneutical and theological lens with which right. I, I look at scripture. I would want to say I think it has a fair amount of depth oh, to yes, it in absolutely. that I have I have worked through you know I've worked through biblical text and theological text right. and philosophical text right. frankly right. to construct this oh, this hermeneutical lens. I realize that for some people. It may not work, right? But that is my th- that oh, is my but, hermeneutical lens. But you have lens. to, and I have yeah. one. You know, I have one as well, and um, that th- it parallels that in a lot of ways. You know, it's really focusing on God's providence mm-hmm. and um, God's yeah, what God's final ends for um, for the world. I mean, it obviously yeah. goes along an, an expanded world view, right? So, and 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 nature. So, it has a similar sense to it, but it's very this kind of broad, yeah. Um, uh, scope. Well, and the that, whole idea of sovereignty me. seems to me to be something that that, that brings out in that comes out in your in your theology. Uh, yeah, I, it, it it does it does indeed, um, and um, I also think there's a, also a um, a hope of love. And in, in, in mm-hmm. other words, that if if God instead of just will use if this individual doesn't end up responding, then God will accomplish God's means through other ways through somebody else exactly and so um you know it it allows for human freedom Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it also allows for god's providence um and so i think that 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 gives me a lot of hope sure well and for me the the final the final scene that i see is is every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father Mm -hmm. i see that in line with those passages that talk about all peoples coming to worship god yeah and 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 it is it, it it gives me the hope that even if people don't come to faith in this life, that somehow they have the opportunity to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and to and to worship God uh, in the end. I agree. Yep, I'm on that same page. Well, friends, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Christy. Mm-hmm.
That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.